Well, good morning again, Harmony. Uh, today we will be wrapping up our series, uh, which is called He Greater Than Me. And throughout this series, what we've been focusing on is how, as Christians, we need to make sure that when we come to the Bible and we read the Bible, that the first thing that happens for us is not necessarily that we jump right to the what's in it for me, but that first that we stop and actually as we're reading through these stories and so often encountering the character of our God, pause just to cherish how awesome our God is. We have fallen into this mentality in the modern age where we desire so much to use the Bible as a self-help guide to making our lives better that we jump right to those pieces when we read stories. We immediately look at it and go, well, this means I should do this. This means I should do that. This means I should act this way. And while absolutely the Word of God desires to change you, that is not necessarily the purpose. The purpose of the Word of God is for you and I to encounter God. The purpose of the Word of God is for you and I to come face to face with Jesus Christ and seeing Him, the most loving, most powerful, most knowledgeable, most awesome person who wants to have a relationship with us. And when we see that, when we encounter Him, when we as the sheep truly know the shepherd, that's what leads to all the change. And once we have that relationship where it's not based on the wisdom the independent pieces of wisdom, but it's based on a loving relationship. That's when we will see that our lives really start to change. Because see, brothers and sisters, the, the reality of life is, is when you and I put up to fight our philosophy versus our relationships, almost always the relationships will win. If you ever raised teenage children, this is the, the difficulty that you tend to find when your kids become teenagers, is, is that, yes, they know what mom and dad want. Yes, they know what they've been taught. Yes, they know the philosophy that they're supposed to live by. But what starts to happen is, is now they have these friends. These buddies, these pals, these people who have been there right where they're with them, who've gone through experiences, who make them laugh, who have their back, who they have this trust with, and they start to pull them a different direction, and now they're stuck between where my friends want to go and where my philosophy is. And almost every time, we will cave on our philosophy. And to be honest, I think God actually appreciates that. I think God built us to be relational beings. I think that's why when you look at the Bible, what does Jesus say the greatest commandment is? He says, it is to love God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says, all the law and all the prophets hang on those two things. We're built off relationship. And so the fear I have, the caution that I have, is to make sure that you and I haven't become philosophical Christians who are absent a real relationship with God. 
See, what you and I need, what we hope we have both personally and also that we see within the lives of our children, is one day when somebody who they care about is pulling them the wrong way. It won't be friendship versus philosophy. It'll be friendship with a flawed human being or my relationship with my perfect and almighty God. And in those moments, they'll go, you've asked me to choose the lesser relationship. That's not going to happen. You're not going to make me leave him. Not not Christianity, not its morality, not its philosophy. You're not going to make me leave him for you. That's not going to happen. And I think the reason we've done this is it's our approach to coming to the Gospels. We don't come to it with the purpose of seeing him. We come to it to see what does it mean to me. And so my challenge to you this whole series has been is start first with just reading the words on the page and realizing that this book tells us an unbelievable story about an unbelievable person who is our creator, our Lord, and our Savior, and he loves you. And if that is your foundation, once you've cherish that, well then start to ask yourself, well, what is he asking me to do? How would he like me to change? If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to Luke, I'm sorry, John chapter 13. We're going to be in John chapter 13. We're actually going to jump a little bit around from 13 to 14. Because there's a couple pieces I want you to see on this last night of Christ's life. I've always believed that one of the best ways to see someone's character is not see who they are when everything is going well, but to see who are they when everything is going wrong. Right? Most of us, if we're sitting with cash in our pockets, good health, a beautiful day, no work to do, and little stress, we tend to be not that bad to hang out with. But it's a different story when you take us and make us unbelievably stressed, have no cash, have bad health, have tons of stress, and then go, let's hang out. Right? That kind of circumstance tends to normally bring out the worst of us. And so I've always taken so much from this final earthly night of Jesus before his crucifixion Or can you just imagine, can you just imagine for a second what he was feeling that night? I think this is a thing that you and I probably don't do enough of. I think sometimes when we read these stories about Christ, we we paint him as Superman. So we immediately go like, it's God. He knew how it was going to play out. He knew that he'd raised from the grave. He knew that he'd defeat death. It wasn't a big deal for him. But brothers and sisters, that's never what's really shown to us in Scripture. Right? Remember when Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, are dealing with the situation where Lazarus dies? And remember, when Lazarus dies, 
Jesus has a chance to make it back to Bethany before he dies to potentially heal him. But he knows that God doesn't want him to go yet because God is going to use this moment. And so Jesus waits. Jesus waits, and he only shows up after Lazarus is dead. And so what's so beautiful about that story is you can see from the word that clearly Jesus knew what was happening, knew what was going to happen, and knew how God was going to use it. So from the moment it starts, he knows Lazarus is going to die. I'm going to show up after that. I'm going to raise him from the dead, and we'll all be good. And then it will be used to glorify God. So you would think, right, Jesus would have no negative emotions about this because he knows how it's going to play out. But most of you know what happens because everybody knows the trivia that the shortest verse in the Bible is what? Jesus wept. Right? It tells us that when Jesus comes to Bethany and he's met by the sisters and he sees their pain and he sees their hurt and he sees their agony, what does he do? He cries with him. Yeah, he knows he's about to walk to that tomb and he's about to command Lazarus to raise. He knows he's about to extinguish death and bring life. But none of that cancels out the pain, the sadness, the hurt that the heart feels. And what we see so, so clearly on the night that Jesus dies is though he has faith that God will see all things through, he feels it all. He feels the hate. He feels the betrayal. He feels the sadness. He feels the stress. But he's still doing what he needs to do. And so as we read these stories of Christ, I want you to remember, imagine being a person who knows you've done no wrong, You've only showed love and kindness and compassion. Yet despite all that, you are about to have your best friends flee you, one of them betray you, and people you care about kill you. Imagine knowing all that is on you and it's about to happen. I don't know about you, but I would be insufferable. It would be so easy to be self-consumed in those moments and only be thinking about yourself. And yet, I want you to look at what happens here. In John chapter 13, this talks about right before the Lord's Supper. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that the hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the very end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, and Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and they had come forth from God, and was going back to God, got up from supper, and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded with. When he came to Simon Peter... He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, 
If I do not wash you, then you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who has has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that one who was betraying him, and for this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. And if I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you, before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. From now on, I am telling you, before it comes, I'm sorry, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send, receives me. And he who receives me, receives him who sent me. So there's a couple things I I want you to see from these words and these actions. One, Can you sense how much it bugs Jesus that Judas is going to betray him? It's a short passage, 20 verses, 20 sentences. And how many times does he mention that one of them will betray him? Three times in that one little passage, it comes up that the men in this room, not the people outside, Not our enemies, not those who stood against us, not those that don't know us. No, the men in this room, the men who for three years have spent every day together. The men who for three years have shared meals, have slept in the same place, have traveled the same place, who fought the same enemies, who have done the same miracles. For three years, together as brothers. And now one of you will betray me. You can sense how much that's on him. Yet look what it brings out in him. Does he tell all of them to leave the room? Does he say he needs some alone time? Does he tell them to get lost? Does he yell at them and curse them out? No, instead he looks around the room and he sees that nobody is going to do this task of washing the feet. Now, you and I may not understand this completely because of cultural significance, but back in those days, you did not walk on paved sidewalk or paved roads. You normally were working on a dirt path. And most people did not have covered feet. You were walking in sandals or some kind of foot where the dirt would get into your feet. And to add to this, When you would go to eat, you weren't sitting at a chair at a table. You were laying down or reclining. And so your feet were right near close to other people. And so typically, before you'd sit down to have a meal, the lowest of lowest servants 
would come by and wash everybody's feet. Why? So I don't have to eat my dinner with your stinky, muddy feet three feet from me. Well, apparently on this particular night, there was no servant to do this work. And so the disciples just kind of decided, like, hey, you know, none, none of us want to do that, so let's just, we'll just eat with dirty feet tonight. Not Jesus. Jesus sees that, and even though it is the lowest, lowliest of tasks, even though it's meant for the lowest person in the room, even though it's an unbelievably humbling act, Jesus, the master, the teacher, the Lord, the king of the universe, the creator of the world, goes and fills a bucket of water, wraps a towel around his waist, and then washes his disciples' feet. And yes, he does that for the practical purpose of them sitting there with clean feet while they eat. But in doing that action, he does more. In doing that action, he shows a humility that is so awesome. And so that's the first thing I want to kind of focus on because, brothers and sisters, I think we're kind of confused sometimes when it comes to this word humility. What I often see today when people talk about being humble is that they confuse the word humility and being humble with having low self-esteem. And so typically when people talk about being humble, they, they start to list off the things that they're not so great at where their weaknesses are, where their opportunities are, and they, they talk about how they know they have room to grow. Well, let's be honest. Is that the case for Jesus? What weaknesses does he have? What flaws? What characteristics does he need to improve upon? The answer is nothing. He has no flaws. He has no weaknesses. He has no deficiencies. He's perfect. He's powerful. He's awesome. So how does somebody who's awesome, powerful, and perfect be humble? Right? Let's be honest, right? If Jesus walks into the room and goes, I'm the man, he's right. He is the man. If Jesus walks into the room and says, you should bow down and worship me right now, he's right. That's exactly what we should do. If Jesus were to walk around and act like God's gift to the world, that would be perfectly appropriate. He is literally God's gift to the world. So how is it that Jesus, who's all these things, is so humble? He's humble because his humility isn't about the power or capability he has. It's about the way that he perceives his life. Jesus did not come Lord over us. He came to serve us and to love us. And so while he's never confused about the power that he has, while he's never confused about his capability, he has decided he will use those things to love. And when you're a person who loves, that means you're somebody who regularly, joyfully, sacrifices for others. And so when Jesus sees a job that needs to be done to show love to the people he loves, he does it. 
And brothers and sisters, why I think this is so important for you and me is I think this is one of the main reasons people struggle with their concept of Christ. Nowadays, I see two, two big camps. I see people who acknowledge the power of God and the power of Christ, but then keep him at arm's distance. They have this fear of him. And let's be honest, I imagine some of you know exactly what this feels like. Have any of you, because of what you've been doing, don't raise your hands. Have any of you, because of things you've been facing outside of this building, not come to church before because you knew you'd feel guilty the moment you walked in here? I had a friend once, uh, and it was funny because we knew each other, but most of our relationship was, was, was built around basketball. And so we'd play basketball, and uh, for a while he started avoiding me. And he, I could always tell he was making something up when he didn't want to hang out. And so finally one day, we, we hang out, and we're playing ball, and we finish a game, and I, I look at him, and I'm like, so what's up, man? He said, what's up? I said, why haven't, we, why haven't I seen you? He said, because you make me feel guilty, Luke. And I said, about what? I said, I, did, what did I say that made you feel guilty? He goes, nothing. You haven't said anything. I said, You're, I'm lost, dude. I am lost. Why? What did I do? And he's like, I've been doing some stuff I know I should be doing. And when I'm around you, because you're a pastor, I feel guilty. I was like, but I didn't even know you were doing that. I've never, like, scolded you. He's like, it doesn't matter. Just being around you, I'm like, pastor, man, if he knew what I'm doing, he'd be mad at me. So you've made me feel guilty, so I've avoided you. And I'm like, that's not really fair, man. And he's like, sorry, this is the way it works. I didn't want to be around you because you made me feel guilty, even though you didn't say anything. And I'll be honest, I think there's a lot of people, that's exactly why they don't come to church. It's not because they don't think there's a God. It's not because they don't think that God's powerful. It's because they actually believe there is a God, and they do believe that God's powerful, and they do believe he has a standard, and they're terrified to walk into those doors and feel him glaring at them. But the problem with that is that misses who he is. Yeah, God knows everything wrong you've done. God knows all your darkest thoughts and darkest actions. God even knows the ones you haven't even acted on. But he's also the one that knew all those things and then died to bring you forgiveness. He's the one that loves you in the midst of that darkness. And so what I see happening is there's some people, they acknowledge this power, but because they miss this humility, because they miss this love, they're afraid to be with him every day. And these are the people that believe there's a God, but they only cry out to him in emergency. They only cry out to him when every other option has been exhausted. They only cry out to him when they are on the ground going, I don't know what to do. God help me. And what those people are missing is, is that God would help them be not in those situations if they would walk with him every single day day. God doesn't want to be your last resort. He wants to be your first hope. 
He doesn't want to be where you go when everything else has exhausted. He wants to be the one you come to the moment you wake up. The first one you call, the first one you talk to, the first one you love. Now, I said there were two camps. I said one camp is this group who believes he's powerful, but because of that, they run from him. The second camp, what I see them do is they actually depower God. They act like there's no hell. They act like there's no judgment. They act like there's nothing that needs to be shown in your life for salvation. They lower everything down to this very easy, achievable level to keep Jesus near and dear to them. But because they do that, because they don't acknowledge his power, their version of God never helps them in any of the troubles of their lives. Because for them, cancer might be bigger than the Jesus they see. That evil boss at work might be more fearful than him. And so, brothers and sisters, my hope for us is when we see a story like this, we realize this is why we follow him. This is a perfect, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who approaches me with unbelievable love and acts in unbelievable humility. Yes, he's perfect, but he's also kind and loving in that perfection. He doesn't take my face and rub it in that perfection to shame me or to make me feel dirty or to make me feel ugly. He uses all of that to show me love. What I also love about this humility that Christ shows is that in it, he is always willing to do what he asks of us and even more. Right? Christ tells you you should love your enemy. Is that an easy thing to do? Not even close. But you know why I can really listen to his words? Because he died for his enemy. Right? God tells me to forgive continually and regularly. And why can I do that? Because he continually and regularly forgives me. Right? This isn't the master that sits on a throne and just throws out dictates to you. This is a master who has been there in the world with you and gone through the pain and the hurt and the sadness and all the darkness you have too. And he's done everything he's asked of you and more. That's why he's so beautiful to follow. He's humble and he's an example. That's why when we talk about harmony and we, we sum up our mission, right? We always say what? We say, love God, love people, follow Jesus. Because no person has ever loved God and loved people better than Jesus did. He didn't just preach these things. He lived these things. And he did it beautifully all the time. He's amazing in this. Flip with me just a little bit further. Jump to 14 of chapter John, or, or John. This one always gets me. This one always gets me because it just emphasizes 
the compassion in his heart. In John chapter 14, Jesus starts to comfort his disciples. Now, I want you to think about that for just a second, right? Who's the one that's about to be betrayed? Jesus. Who's the one that's about to be abandoned by his friends? Jesus. Who's the one that's about to be lied to and put on trial for hours? Jesus. Who's the one that's about to be dragged around town, made a mockery of, have people spit on him and beat him? Jesus. Who's the one that's then going to be tortured? Jesus. Who's the one that's going to be nailed to a cross and suffocate to death? Jesus. Who's the one that's about to bear the sins of the earth on his shoulders? Jesus. Who's the one that's about to die? Jesus. And yet he looks around the dinner table. And in the midst of knowing all those things are about to happen to him, he realizes his disciples are struggling a bit. And he decides he needs to comfort them. That's why I follow this guy. This is the guy who should be completely self-consumed, who has every excuse in this moment to just be about, hey, I got to get prepped because I got some stuff I got to go do right now and it ain't going to be easy. So everybody could just shut up for a few minutes and give me a few seconds to just get myself together here. I'd really appreciate that. Like parents, you've, you've probably had these days, right, where you're getting crushed by the world and then your child comes home with a small, tiny, insignificant problem but acts like it's the end of the world. And there's this little part of you that just wants to be like, have some perspective. <laughs> I'm so sorry that your Pikachu card is missing on the school bus. Let me just drop everything else so we can find your card because that's what matters right now. But what do you realize? They have no perspective of that. They can't see. They can't see what's happening. They can't see what's on your shoulders. They can't see what you're bearing. They can't see what you're about to face. And so you, you show them love. Even though you know what they're dealing with isn't that big. Jesus is literally carrying the sake of the universe on his shoulders at this moment. And yet he looks across the table and he sees his children struggling and he goes, all right, let me pause for a second. Let me just give you guys a little strength. And to me, in this next passage, he gives the greatest promise there is. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may also be. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. So how do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I love that passage. I love that passage because it reveals to you just so much truth in such simple terms. As a pastor, I regularly get questions about heaven from people. I almost always point people to this. 
to be honest, I really don't know exactly how heaven's going to be. And to be equally honest, I don't really care. Because I know that. I know Jesus, the one that shaped me in my mother's womb, the one who wove me together with purpose and intention and beauty and power, the one that knows every single one of my thoughts, who knew every single one of my days, the one that loves me enough to die on the cross for me. I know that where I'm going is a place he prepared. And he prepared it for me. That's enough. I don't need to know the details. Knowing that is enough for me to know that's a place I can't wait to be. That's a place that's going to bring me joy. That's a place that's going to make me smile. That's going to be a place that's going to take my breath away. I don't need to know the details. Because I know him, and I know he made it out of love for me. See, brothers and sisters, what I love about this message is it just shows the brilliance of who he is. He realizes in this moment he can't answer every one of their questions. And even if he tried to, they probably won't understand. So he brings them back to the simplest of truths. Look, you don't know everything. You're going to be afraid and you're going to have a lot of questions, but know this. I've got it. I've got it. I've got a plan, I've got the power, I've got the way. And I love Thomas, right? Thomas can't help himself but get into the details just a little bit, but like, hey, that's cool, it really sounds like a great place, and I'm glad you're going to be there, but I don't know how to get there. And Jesus sums it up real easy for us all. This is a message of salvation he gives right here. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Thomas, if you know how to get to me, you know how to get there. Thomas, if you know who I am, you know everything you need to know. I love that. I love that because it's that message that just warms you. It reminds me of that feeling you had when you were a child and you were terrified and you jumped up into your mom or dad's arms and they just held you. Like in those moments when they were squeezing you and holding you tight, you didn't need words. You didn't need a scientific explanation that there were no monsters in your room. You didn't need a scientific explanation of that nothing occurs in the darkness of your bedroom while you're asleep other than everything's dark and sit still. You didn't need any logic or knowledge or any of that. What you needed in that moment was a person that you loved, that you trusted, and that was powerful going, I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. That's what he does right here. In the moment where they should have been surrounding him, going, we're going to stand with you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. In that moment, he saw their fear, and he goes, I got you. It's all going to be okay. I've got a plan, and I've got the way. Just trust in me. And brothers and sisters, that's where I'd like to leave you. I don't know all the details of what you're facing. But I know this, each and every one of you has a battle you're fighting. 
Each and every one of you probably has something that right now consumes you with fear and doubt and with worry. And some of those things, you stare at them and you don't foresee a way through. You don't know how you're going to get through them. There's no logic that you can piece together that makes it feel like everything's going to work out. In those moments, remember what he said here. That's exactly where the disciples were. They're sitting there and they're going, how will things be better when you're dead? Explain to me how we finish the mission. Explain to me how we change the world. Explain to me how we do any of these things that we have worked for and sacrificed and done, God, if you end up on a cross today. Explain that one to me because it doesn't work. I want to believe you. I want to trust you, but this doesn't get it. There's no way you on that cross is a good thing. That's what all of them in that room believed. And he knew that. And so he just told them, trust me. Trust me. I go to a place that I prepared. I know the way. And if you follow me, it'll be okay. Some of you need to learn to just shut the brain off. Stop thinking it all through. And just remember that. This is why we follow him. Let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, I pray that today our hearts are filled with praise for you, not because of what you've given us, not because of what we hope to get from you, but just praise, Lord, because we've seen you. We've seen your power. We've seen your love. We've seen your majesty. And our breath has been taken away, God. That sinners like us get to call you dad. That sinners like us get to follow you and work with you and love you. What a gift, Father. What a gift. Lord, we praise you. And we praise your son, Jesus. And we praise the spirit that you have put in our hearts. In the wonderful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As Maria comes to sing with us, I'll be up here at the front. Brother James, Brother Matt, uh, Justin will be in the back. If there's anything on your heart that you just wish somebody else was praying about, feel free to come forward and, and talk to any of us. And as always, if you don't feel comfortable coming up during service, seek us out after. We're always here to lend a hand and to pray with you as you go along God's journey. Maria? Let's all stand. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence. 
This is my daily bread. This is my daily bread. Your very word spoken to me.
God's people said. Amen. As always, it is such a joy to worship with y'all. Uh, I encourage you to remember, God has given you a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. That means you are a dangerous instrument in his hands. And you have a mission, which is to go outside those walls, to love God, love people, and follow Jesus. So I hope you have a very productive week doing that. May God bless you, and we will see you hopefully Wednesday. Love you all.